Well, I'm very intrigued by the book that I hold in hand called Fly, the Big Book of Basketball Fashion. Yes, this is a book about professional basketball and about the striking uh, fashion statements that have been made by many of basketball's greatest legends down through the years. It's a really intriguing idea and uh, executed really, really beautifully by my morning show guest, Mitchell S. Jackson. He's actually a winner of the 2021 Pulitzer Prize in Feature Writing and the 2021 National Magazine Award in Feature Writing. And perhaps you've heard of his book, The Residue Years, uh, as well as Survival Math and the forthcoming John of Watts. And he is obviously someone who is sought after. His uh, work appears in many places, including uh, New York Times Magazine, uh, Esquire, and in many, many other places. And uh, he is the John O. Whiteman Dean's Distinguished Professor in the Department of English at Arizona State University. And uh, he is behind this intriguing book that uh, takes us through, in a sense, the history of the NBA, uh, through its fashion. And it's something that, of course, a lot of us are aware of, but perhaps have not deeply thought about. And um, we'll find out from Mitchell Jackson uh, just why uh, this was intriguing enough to him uh, that he wanted to explore it uh, to this length with this really uh, wonderful book published by Artisan. Again, titled Fly, the Big Book of Basketball Fashion. And Mitchell S. Jackson, or I guess I should say Professor Mitchell S. Jackson, we welcome you to the morning show. <laughs> Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Uh, let's first find out from you your own relationship to the sport of basketball. Is basketball something you played or mostly watched? And at what point did this other facet of basketball, and especially professional basketball, become of such interest to you? Uh, yeah, basketball. I grew up in Portland, Oregon, uh, and one of the things we call Portland, Oregon is Rip City. Uh, so I was a, a, a kid when those really good Blazer teams with Clyde Drexler and Terry Porter and Jerome Kersey and Kevin Duckworth and Buck Williams uh, were, uh, you know, winning conference finals. They went and played the Bulls that year. Uh, and then some of my uh, high school friends – and some of the guys I looked up to in high school, they actually went to the NBA. So we had a guy, Damon Stoudemire, who's a really good friend, who ended up winning Rookie of the Year. And so Portland is a really big basketball city, and I played basketball in high school in, uh, through junior college. Um, and I also, from the time that I was a child, had a, a, a fascination with fashion. I would read a bunch of Esquire and GQ magazines, or really not read them, but look at the pictures when I was young. And so I had those two things really uh, from a very young age. And, uh, you know, all these years later, I've been writing about basketball uh, um, for, for quite a number of years. My first piece of published writing was a feature story about basketball players. Um, and so I noticed, you know, recently that we are, how much emphasis the NBA and other sports leagues have been putting on the players' fashion, and I think the NBA is really the forerunner in uh, fashion and professional sports. And I thought, well, now is a good time to put my, you know, twin passions to work uh, and really investigate uh, the, the history of 
NBA fashion and, and how we got to this place right now. Hmm. In uh, an early chapter in the book titled Influence, you tell us about, I think really help us kind of appreciate the, the singular position of professional basketball and especially the singular position and influence of basketball's biggest stars, that is the NBA's biggest stars. I think we don't often maybe stop to think about that in relationship to perhaps uh, popular baseball players or popular football players. There really is something else going on when it comes to the leading stars of the NBA. What exactly is that difference or distinction in your mind? I want to give you an anecdote that I think really spells out the point that you're asking or the question you're asking. I just attended the um, NBA play-in tournament in in Las Vegas. And while I was leaving, uh, uh, going through TSA, there was a guy that walked up behind me, and I kind of glanced at him, and I said, wow, that guy really looks like um, Barry Bonds. Then I looked back again, I'm like, no, that's probably Barry Bonds. So I watched, and we were both going through clear. So I saw his name pop up on the screen to get verified through clear, and it was, in fact, Barry Bonds. And so we, the whole way through, it was a long line. He took his shoes off and his backpack and everything else like everyone else. And then he came through, and not a single person said, hey, sir, can I have your autograph? Hey, um, can I take a picture with you? I mean, granted, we were in, in uh, TSA. And then I tried, I was like thinking when I got through, Barry Bonds is not even arguably one of the greatest baseball players that's ever lived. Right. And imagine a comparable NBA player. Like imagine Michael Jordan coming through a TSA line in Las Vegas. Like it just, he would be mobbed. And I thought, man, that's how that must, I mean, maybe Barry likes that, but I just think that the NBA has done such a great job in marketing their players and making them bigger than life and making them people that are recognized off the court that the other, um, major sports leagues are really lagging in those areas. And so I think the marketing prowess of the NBA and the foresight to allow their players to become really businesses unto themselves is, uh, is, is responsible for that. Hmm. I really love a, a moment, uh, I think, that speaks to this um, in a section of the book called Style Matters in which you tell a story mm-hmm. about uh, the legendary LeBron James uh, getting yeah. off of an airplane wearing something that, you know, in a sense, mm-hmm. tur- turned the world on its ear. Uh, I think it was for uh, yeah. uh, on his way to the, uh, or way back from the Beijing Olympics. Olympics. Uh, tell our listeners yeah. about this. Yeah, so that was uh, Beats by Dre headphones, which were new, and they were actually a headphone that was, well, they were super expensive and still are, and they were being marketed to people who worked in music studios, uh, so like professional equipment, but uh, somehow um, the people who made them got them to LeBron, and they wore them in off of the plane in Beijing, and it was one of the first viral moments uh, connected to an NBA player and the Beach by Dre headphones just started selling and selling and selling. And I think it was a time when Madison Avenue recognized that NBA players could sell us things that were not connected to basketball. You know, before, yeah, they were giving us Gatorade and, 
you know, and they had sneakers and, and, and workout apparel. But to sell us headphones, that was unusual. And I think that moment really kind of showed the impact that NBA players had outside of their sphere. Hmm. I'm glad that rather early in the book you make what I think is a central point. And this is also maybe a way in which uh, these superstar NBA players uh, are, are, are very much uh, a, a different matter versus their counterparts in football or, 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 or baseball. And, and that is the way in which so many of these NBA superstars are redefining the whole notion of masculinity and of, yeah. of, and of what, what fashion can say about, for instance, an elite athlete. And I don't think I, until yeah. I took your book in hand and saw all these photographs that I really stopped to think about uh, the way in which uh, some really dramatic, bold statements have been made with the fashion choices of, of, of some of these superstars. Uh, what are, what are yeah. your thoughts about this whole notion of masculinity and fashion choices and, and what's going on with the fashion choices that some of these players are choosing and or adopting? Yeah, I, uh, you know, I mentioned Dennis Rodman there, who's before his time in terms of kind of gender bending or challenging no, rigid notions of gender through his fashion. I think the distinction between what Rodman was doing in the 1990s and what these young men are doing in the 2020s is that Rodman seemed to want to shock us in what he was doing, like he was in it for the attention. And I think these young men are actually part of the LGBTQII movement, whether or not they would realize that or even say it, because we're living in an era where gender is being redefined, and it's not just them. You know, if you look at a lot of the high fashion brands, you go to their sites, and now there's androgyny, there's uh, some some sites don't even list whether something is for a man or a woman anymore. And so this idea of unisex or androgynous or non-gender clothing is part of the movement, I think, the trans movement, clearly. Um, and I think that these young people are growing up with a different set of um, uh, uh, ideas about the world and ideas about sexuality and ideas about gender, and they're using fashion to um, display these evolving notions. And so now you have young men who probably would consider themselves hetero wearing fingernail paint and, uh, you know, wearing skirts now. And so, um, you know, I think we're just in a different era. I mean, it's harder for me to, I, I can't see myself wearing a skirt at now 48 years old, but for a young 28, 21 year old guy who's, who's really trying to push against these, rigid notions of gender, that's the thing he can do. Uh, I don't think we should go any farther without uh, talking about the matter of race and the fact that when we yeah. uh, look through your book, although once in a while we'll see the face of, of, of Larry Bird or <laughs> Larry Kevin Love, <laughs> by and large, we uh, the vast majority of players that we are seeing in this book and the vast majority of the players that you're really talking about in terms of bold fashion fashion statements uh, are players of color. Um, 
how yeah. much is this tied up in that? And do you see uh, the bold and and often flamboyant fashion choices being made by some of these superstars as as being tied up in matters of of racial identity? Absolutely. Um, I think a, a, a lot of different things connected to racial identity. One is the notion of oppression um, and how you resist that imp- resist that oppression. And one way is for you to be, you know, black people have obviously been financially and socially oppressed. And one way to resist that is to uh, dress flamboyantly, is to show your wealth, is to aspire to be something other than what uh, you know, the society has kind of created for you. So I think there's that, like there's a showing of your wealth or imagining that you could be this through your clothing. I also think culturally, if you think about Africans, they're generally more ostentatious and vibrant, right? Like think about all the cloth that you can think of that's African cloth, how vibrant the patterns are, how 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 many colors they have in it. And then if you go back and look at, you know, uh, old kings and queens and, and tribal leaders, how much jewelry they would have used to adorn themselves in. I also feel like, you know, most recently hip-hop has taken on that, right? Like if you want to know what black ostentatiousness is, look at hip-hop. And so these, these young men now are uh, really connected, or they're the, basically they're the same people as the rappers, right? They come out of the same neighborhood, they're around the same age, they have some of the same social limitations, uh, and they're using the mean, their talents to ascend uh, beyond those restrictions. Uh, and, you know, the league has for a long time been a black league, but I, we should mention that when it started in 1946, there were no black players. They didn't get a black player until 1950, the first three black players came into the NBA. So in the beginning of the league, there's a lot more parity. There's a lot more uniformity um, in in what the players are wearing. But once the black guys got in there and got a little bit of power, they started wearing their bell bottoms and their afros and their butterfly collars and their two chains. (laughs) We're speaking with Mitchell S. Jackson about his book, Fly, the big book of basketball fashion. We should say that the book uh, is laid out according to eras. And uh, so we have the, the conformists early on versus flamboyance. Jordan, we all know what that means. The Iverson effect dress code and uh, uh, Insta-Tunnel Walk. Uh, So different eras, not just strict decades or whatever. How hard was it for you to kind of come up with this framework for the book and for you to, in a sense, define the history of NBA fashion in this way? I mean, did these these eras easily and sort of obviously come to mind or, 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 or did it take some work to kind of sort that out? Uh, I should say that in the beginning, I was actually going to do it by decades. And luckily I had an editor who suggested that decades would be kind of arbitrary. They wouldn't necessarily mark shifts in significant shifts in, in the fashion. Uh, and once he said that to me, I really started to try to investigate a lot of photos, right? Look at a lot of photos so I could see where there are noticeable shifts. And that took a lot of time. Uh, I mean, this book took almost three years to write, and I thought it was going to be a few months project. 
but once I got into it, and especially once I got to the 1970s, which is about when I started, you know, early 1980s is when I started watching basketball. So I had a little bit more lived experience in terms of what players I should be looking for and what was happening in the league. But certainly those earlier ones, the 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 flamboyance. Um, in in the in the uniformity in the first era, that was harder, and it was also less pitchers to look at, right? Like there ain't that many pitchers of George Mike in street clothes. Um, <laughs> but I but I enjoyed it because while I was doing this book, I was also becoming kind of a basketball historian, which I had never done, and I played basketball for twenty years. One thing that I especially appreciated about the book is in the chapter devoted to uh, the great Michael Jordan and uh, his era, which you define as from the early 1980s to the late 1990s. So it's it's a long period in which his influence is felt that uh, that your book goes way beyond just the Air Jordans, which uh, are what we immediately think of in terms of Michael Jordan and fashion. But 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 there were also things. like his signature baggy uh, basketball shorts. And and I never really knew yeah. the full story behind that. I mean behind that choice and and then how how yeah. that became, you know, kind of the the, the way to go after that. It, uh, re- explain to our listeners or remind our listeners about that. Yeah, Jordan, I mean, I think the thing to say about Michael Jordan is that his apex, he was the most famous person in the world. Uh there was a uh, a poll taken and Jordan was second only to Jesus in fame in the world. And so if you got a person that famous, whether people like what they're doing or not, they're going to have influence. And so Jordan had a tremendous amount of impact and influence on the NBA, certainly. And then at large and, um, or writ large. And I think, uh, the shorts came out of him really, having a fidelity to North Carolina. He would wear his North Carolina shorts under his Bulls shorts, and therefore they had to be baggier, which is strange because it would give you more weight, right? So it also makes it kind of harder to do what you can do. But apparently it didn't matter because Mike was still flying around the court. Um, and I think we also can't separate that time that Mike is wearing the baggy shorts from what's happening in college basketball at the time, which is uh, the Michigan um, Big Five or the Fab Five, who who notoriously, maybe not notoriously, who famously wore their shirts really, really, really large and were the most famous college basketball team in that year that they were together. So I think those two things really pushed the culture towards the baggy look. And also, if you look at the eras, to me, one era is always resisting what was popular in a previous era and trying to reimagine it. And so if you look at what came right before Jordan, you're looking at those really short, short NBA shorts. And so for Jordan to make a mark, he had to move away from that. Uh, If you look a few years ago, the NBA had kind of moved back towards the short shorts because the the long shorts had been involved for so long. So I think it always, I mean, we always kind of look back at what has happened and then try to reimagine how to move forward. Right. Uh, And I know we don't have much time left. I want to talk briefly about uh, the really interesting uh, chapter that follows your chapter on on Michael Jordan, uh, which you call the Iverson effect uh, with Allen Iverson. uh, And this is kind of the hip-hop era of of NBA. Um, You call Allen Iverson a paragon of hip-hop 
splendiferousness. <laughs> um, but what, but, but what's really, but what's really interesting is that one of the things that that uh, emerges uh, in the wake of that is a dress code instituted in 2005 by NBA Commissioner David Stern. Remind our listeners about that yeah. and its significance and, and the interesting way in which this dress code was crafted. Yeah. So I, as, as I mentioned, you know, one era is, is constantly defining itself on the previous era. And so if you think about Allen Iverson, he came in on the heels of Jordan. So Jordan still ruled really when Iverson came in. And so uh, two important points. One, how do you define yourself against what's before you? So Iverson had to be different than Jordan. The other thing is Iverson and I are the same age, born in 1975, which is around the inception of hip-hop. So Iverson, as a child, doesn't know uh, an America without hip-hop. Jordan and Charles Barkley and those guys, they did. And so we are, Iverson is part of the first era of NBA players who did, who never didn't, who, who always knew hip hop. And I think that that showed in, in the ethos of hip hop, right? And it being a counterculture movement and being these, these impoverished people in the Bronx trying to figure out how they could um, resist their oppression. And I think that ethos spanned Iverson's whole career. Uh, I also feel like Iverson was mythologized before he ever even got to the league. He had a brawl when he was in high school. He was actually sent to jail. He had to get a prison pardon or governor governor's pardon. And then he goes to Georgetown and plays for the most famous black basketball coach probably in the history of college basketball in John Thompson. And so and then he was the number one pick. So by the time Iverson gets to the league, he's already a myth. Um and then he, he has you know, obviously he does well. He's, he's rookie of the year. He plays very well. I think all of those things really help Iverson have maybe even an outsized influence. But Iverson, to me, represents the, 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 the generation that takes over the NBA that is also hip-hop. I want to mention that that the book is spectacular to look at in terms of the photographs, and there are also several different uh, interviews that are also part of this in which you talk with uh, very specific figures who are kind of part of this world, including designers. I bet that was a special pleasure for you. Yes, it was. Uh, Especially, well, it was a... I like talking to P.J. Tucker, too, because he's like the sneaker guy of the NBA. But uh, I wanted to have, I think something that's interesting about the NBA and their fashion is how it's, it's uh, spawned these cottage industries, right? So now you have stylists and jewelers, and, and now there are people trying to get, you know, marketing opportunities. And so to me, that lets you know how big it is. I mean, just at the playing tournament, the NBA itself made a red carpet and, and a special tunnel for the players to come in through. So it's certainly, certainly a, a huge um, aspect now of the NBA. Hmm. Last quick question. Did your faculty colleagues uh, give you any, uh, <laughs> any, I don't, <laughs> I don't know. Let, let me rephrase they that. They liked it. They, they, so they, they, yeah. they didn't sort of uh, look at you, uh, you know, with, with wonderment that you would devote so much time and energy to a topic <laughs> like this? Well, they didn't know that I was doing it until it came out. Ah. So that's, 
one thing. And, uh, you know, I, I feel like I, I do so much other work in between. Like, I write a column for Esquire. I'm a contributor at the New York Times Magazine. So I have enough other things going that I think it'd be really hard to dismiss me as an unserious academic with my other work. But, I, yeah, I'm sure there were some that didn't say anything to me that were kind of looking down their noses at, at my project. Well, it's actually a terrific book, and although I came to this not with any sort of natural interest in it in place at all, uh, I really love this book, and I learned a whole lot about it, and I can certainly imagine uh, a, a basketball fan, and especially someone who is a fan of many of these great players, uh, really enjoying this book thoroughly. Again, it's titled Fly, the Big Book of Basketball Fashion. Uh, and its author, uh, Mitchell S. Jackson. Professor Jackson, thank you so much for uh, for uh, taking the time to talk with me about your really entertaining and interesting book. Thank you so much, and best wishes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I had a great time.